Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. How did Chicago and other major American cities become so segregated along racial lines? For decades, local and federal policies like redlining packed black residents into disinvested urban neighborhoods, while middle class and affluent whites were given a path out and into newly created suburbs. Now, the Fair Housing Act in 1968 was supposed to fix things, but while the civil rights legislation was a major move forward, cities like Chicago continued to be segregated along racial lines. A new book by Kianga Yamada-Taylor looks at how a mix of federal policy and private industry perpetuated those lines. It's called Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership. Kianga, welcome to Reset. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into the book, the history of housing in America is laden with terms people don't always fully understand. Now, redlining was one federal practice that contributed heavily to housing segregation here in Chicago and nationwide. Can you just unpack that term for us? Sure. So redlining is a practice that begins almost instantaneously when U.S. housing policies begin. So before the 1930s, the federal government really had no federal policies dictating terms around housing. That changed in 1934 amidst the, the Great Depression. And so one of the things that the federal government did is the government stepped in to stop what essentially was a foreclosure crisis in the 1930s. By 1933, half of all mortgages in the United States had gone into foreclosure. And so one of the things that the federal government did was to step in in that instance and help homeowners refinance their loans so that they could avoid foreclosure. And then in the aftermath of that, the federal government understood that having a robust housing market could actually create an economic stimulus that could pull the U.S. economy out of depression. The problem was is that banks were reluctant to lend money because of the experiences during the heart of the Great Depression. So one of the things that the federal government did to convince banks to continue to loan was they instituted something called mortgage insurance. So in 1934, the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, was created, and their primary responsibility was to insure the mortgages of people who would ordinarily be considered subprime lenders who could not go to a conventional bank and get a regular mortgage. The federal government stepped in and said, to the banks that if you lend to these people, then we will cover their loan in the event of foreclosure on two conditions. One is that the properties have to be new, and two is that the properties must be located in racially homogenous areas. And the combination of those meant that mortgage insurance was going to flow to the suburbs where white people were moving. And so that was the primary way that the federal government contributed to this practice of redlining. So the federal government's role in creating the conditions for segregation, uh, there's been a lot of historical study around that. But now you're supplementing that history of redlining with analysis of the real estate industry. Why is it important to add that additional context? Well, I think that 
there has been a tremendous amount of focus on the ways that the federal government contributed to and legitimized the practices of residential segregation. But I think that that's an incomplete picture. And what I'm trying to show in my book is that is the relationship between the public and private sectors that really create the conditions for segregation and that rapidly expand them, which is to say that when the federal government establishes the FHA and creates housing policies for the first time, they don't do so in a vacuum. And as is typical with federal agencies when they start a new endeavor, they always go to the industry experts to take up best practices and in, in how to do that. And in this case, taking up best practices meant consulting with the real estate industry, hiring people from the real estate industry into public government to help shape these policies. And so you see from the very outset that there is a very close relationship between public and private institutions and actors in creating segregative housing policies. And this is something that goes on throughout and I think is important because it's not that the federal government created residential segregation. In a city like Chicago, which was the headquarters for many of the most important trade associations in the real estate industry, such as the National Association of Real Estate Boards, which formed in around 1917 and by 1924 already had a rule on its books that any realtor who was responsible for introducing someone of a different race into a racially majority community, basically meaning a real estate agent who tried to integrate a neighborhood would lose their real estate license, would lose their ability to practice real estate in the state of Illinois or beyond. And so, you know, these practices were already well underway. And when the federal government recruited these private brokers and other actors within the private real estate market, they adopted these policies. They brought these policies and practices with them into federal practice. Well, you write in the book that once the Fair Housing Act was passed, African-Americans' position in the housing market shifted. So it moved from a position of exclusion to one of inclusion, but predatory inclusion. What does that mean? Predatory inclusion is a way of understanding how racist exclusion, so redlining ends, but black people are now included into the conventional real estate market, not on the same terms as their white peers, but on different and more exploitative terms, meaning that the conditions that were created by redlining, so disinvestment, Disinvestment leads to deterioration and dilapidation in urban communities. And after redlining, those conditions that are created by racial discrimination in the first place, those conditions then become the basis upon which African-Americans are regarded at risk of not repaying loans and thus able to be treated on different terms within the conventional real estate market. And so race is no longer the driving factor in the differential treatment of African-Americans. It is the conditions that have been created by racism that are, you know, supposedly neutral and colorblind, but those become the new factors by which the differential treatment of black people in the market becomes. And those differences have a financial cost. The main one that I write about in the book is that 
the conditions within African-American communities become a justification for big commercial depository banks to continue to not do business in black communities. And so what many of them do is they create subsidiaries, mortgage banks, that mortgage lenders that are not regulated by the federal government, that are able to use different terms in African-American communities and the practices that they engage in themselves, which is mortgage bankers are primarily invested in volume sales because they are getting paid for each loan that is secured. They are making money on the back end of the loan through closing costs. And so they're interested in volume and they're selling these loans. They're packaging the loans and selling them as quickly as they obtain them, which means that they don't really have an interest in the health of the loan. There's no connection between the bank and where the loan has been lent. There's none of that. And so that in and of itself creates questionable business practices that in these programs that I look at in the 1970s eventually boil over and contribute to a a wave of foreclosures in African-American communities during the 1970s. When we talk about the the building of generational wealth in America, Mm -hmm. that's very strongly connected to home ownership. Absolutely. How has this Um, combination of public-private partnerships and and how it fits in with segregation, how has it affected Black Americans' ability to grow wealth? Well, I think the the main reason or the main way that Black wealth accumulation has been affected has to do with the different ways that black properties are regarded. So there's been study after study that has shown that property in the hands of black people is valued less than property in the hands of white people. You see it here in a city like Chicago, where you have homes on the south side of the city in a neighborhood like Bronzeville and the 60653 zip code that are, you know, between four and $600,000 that are blocks from Lake Michigan. If those homes were five, six, seven miles north of the neighborhood that they are currently in, those would be million-dollar homes. But because they are in a black neighborhood, they are valued less. And so the way that race functions in the real estate market in the United States has helped to both lower the quality of housing in African-American communities while simultaneously driving up the cost. And within the real estate industry, it has been widely understood, whether it has been enunciated or not, that the exclusive white neighborhood is the most prized. That is where the value of housing is at its peak. In, in fact, the further you get away from black people in black communities, the more that the value of that housing rises. And this is historically why white homeowners have had almost a hysterical reaction to the presence of black people in their neighborhoods from the kind of mob scenes that were popular in Chicago in the mid-century. Chicago was known for firebombing the homes of what were called black pioneers, black families who would venture out of the black belt to go into white communities. This kind of violence was really present and evident well into the late 60s and early 70s. I write about black homes being firebombed in Long Island, in the the suburbs of Cleveland, because there is a panic about what will happen to property values. And in a country where your ability to personally accumulate wealth 
is really what unleashes social mobility and determines the quality of your life. Home ownership determines whether you can finance your child's education, whether you have the financial wherewithal to withstand a crisis, a healthcare crisis or any other kind of crisis. It can determine the quality of your retirement. And so property values are important in that sense, and people will do anything to protect them. And often that has meant driving black people out of the neighborhood. And I think that because of the relationship between the private sector and the public sector and the way that the federal government has consistently divested itself from producing or even managing any housing stock for poor working class people and has essentially outsourced that to the private sector, it means that those concerns about property value inevitably become reflected in public policy. And it has also meant that the federal government has weakened its own ability to regulate and enforce its own laws regarding civil rights because it has become dependent on the private sector, a sector that has relied on racial discrimination to help shape its bottom line. As you've mentioned, Chicago has a pretty interesting history uh, with all of this. Much of the city segregation in particular can be traced to developers' use of contract buying to restrict African Americans uh, to certain neighborhoods and, and squeeze them for cash. Tell us more about that practice. So contract buying was a practice that really begins in the post-World War II period, not just in Chicago, but in major cities across the country, which are experiencing rapid growth from black populations who are moving into cities, who are looking for opportunities and jobs, and, and also to really maximize what it means to be a citizen in the U.S. And that inevitably meant becoming homeowners. But these were areas that the FHA would not insure home loans for. And the lack of insurance for home loans meant that private lenders would not lend to black people. And so this meant that African-Americans, in order to own their own homes, had to use unconventional means, such as land installment contracts. And these were the kind of peak example of predatory lending. Beryl Satter, who is the author of Family Properties, has written the definitive account of these practices, where essentially, if you were a contract buyer, it meant that you put money down, you paid a monthly mortgage fee, even though you're not the actual owner of the property, you assume all of the financial risks of home ownership, you're responsible for the maintenance, you're responsible for property taxes. But in effect, if you miss a single payment, you are treated as if you were a renter and you lose all your investment, you lose all of the equity in the home. And part of the problem in terms of why they were so expensive is because real estate operatives understood very quickly that if they had a captured African-American audience in terms of a captured market for housing, it meant that black people would have to pay any price in order to secure housing. And so real estate operatives would buy properties low from white homeowners with the threat that the blacks are coming. And when the blacks come, your property values are going to drop. And so white people would sell low and then those same homes would be flipped to black buyers for three or four times their actual value because blacks were living in 
incredibly overcrowded conditions. Even though people were moving in and there was intense overcrowding, the city refused to increase the public services in those neighborhoods. So trash pickup did not increase, even though there was intense overcrowding. So people were desperate for housing and would often pay the inflated cost, which meant that they were at risk of missing a payment on their contract. And then they would be divested from the home and evicted. And so There was a huge struggle around this in Chicago led by the Contract Buyers League in the late 1960s that worked to really overturn those practices. And that coincided with the passage of the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968, which produced the first federal program aimed at turning low-income renters into low-income homeowners. When you think about this from a policy perspective, mm-hmm. I mean, because we could talk about the Great Recession and mm-hmm. predatory lending and the way that wiped out black wealth. But when you look at it from a historical perspective and the way policy has been created around housing in the country, what do you think needs to shift in policy to correct for some of the things that have happened over time and and perhaps just create a new model? There are two things. There's Things that can be done now, and this should be done now, and then we need a new model. For the here and now, because this is, you know, people live in the here and now. They don't live in the future. On a very basic level, if the United States just put the most minimal effort into enforcing its own rules and regulations regarding discrimination and civil rights in housing, so much could change. So many possibilities could open up because all of the housing catastrophes that we talk about in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years are directly related to racial discrimination in the housing market. I mean, think back to the lawsuit involving Wells Fargo in Baltimore. You know, this was a bank that was incentivizing pushing subprime loans on African-Americans, even when they qualified for prime loans. They called these ghetto loans. You know, they referred to black people as mud people. So in these ways, black people were targeted. This is completely illegal practices. And we know that Wells Fargo is not the only bank involved in these practices because they were widespread throughout the country. So if there was even the most minimal effort into enforcing the U.S.'s own rules and regulations on civil rights, so much could change. But I do think that in the same ways that there have been new conversations opened up about the federal government's responsibility to provide health insurance for all of its citizens, the same way that a discussion has opened up about if we think education, college education, creates a more informed citizenry, then perhaps it should be free and accessible to everyone. I think that we need to think about a different way of distributing housing and creating housing security for people that is not completely tied up with the private sector. One of the things that I look at in my book is that there is a basic conflict of interest. The private sector in housing, real estate, is really about you know, buying low, selling high, and making a profit. And it doesn't matter if you like that or if you don't like it. It's not a pejorative. That That is the purpose of the real estate industry. But the purpose of public policy and public welfare is to actually protect the public's interest. And profit-making and the public's interest don't match. And we keep trying to fit this square peg into the round hole of housing policy. And it's why there is a perpetual crisis of affordable housing. There's no affordable housing because it's not profitable to create affordable housing. And so we have to unhinge 
or disconnect our housing policies from a profit-seeking sector that is not concerned with housing as a human need, but is concerned about its bottom line. And I think once we begin to have that discussion, we can begin to think about the distribution of housing, the, the, the building of housing, the creation of housing in completely and fundamentally different ways. You used to live in Chicago. Yes, I did. And I'm curious, just as we wrap up, as you were writing this book, Chicago has a, a very specific history around oh, um, yeah. resistance to housing discrimination and inequality. As someone who used to live in this city, what was it like for you to explore that history and, and pull it into this book? Chicago is is so important in the story of housing in the United States in multiple ways. But I think, you know, a lot of the activists who became, who were activated around this HUD FHA scandal that unfolds throughout the 1970s were really instrumental in helping to create new pathways and new possibilities in housing policy. The activists here in the 1970s helped to open up the, the, the space for the 1975 Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, which essentially forced banks to have to reveal who they were receiving deposits from and where that money was going. Because these activists knew that even though these banks wouldn't do business in working class black communities, they were accepting deposits and they were taking black people's money and really working class people who lived in the city and lending it to people in the suburbs. And so the passage of the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act put a spotlight on those practices. They were also responsible, uh, Gail Sincata and the West Side homeowners that became part of a, a movement around community reinvestment. They were responsible for the Community Reinvestment Act in the late 1970s. And so this was incredibly important, not just for people in Chicago, but these were incredibly important national policies. So there's a, you know, the Contract Buyers League, the community reinvestment activists of the 1970s were critical, not just in challenging the status quo in the city of Chicago, but really establishing a kind of demonstrating what grassroots activism could look like in the struggle for housing justice around the country. That's Kianga Yamada-Taylor, professor of African-American studies at Princeton University and the author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership. Professor, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today's Reset. I'm Jen White. I'll be off for a few days, but meanwhile, WBEZ's Susie Ahn and Natalie Moore will fill in for me. So watch your podcast feed for some great end of the year and end of the decade conversations that we're putting together over the next week. From all of us at Reset, have a happy and safe holiday season. And let's talk again in 2020. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.